The Cannabis and Home Grow Show is sponsored by AeroClean 420 and Aero Home Hobby, the industry leader in air purification in cannabis cultivation. Visit AeroClean420.com and PreventPowderyMildew.com to learn more about their cutting-edge technology that has proven effective across commercial grows for over seven years. You won't regret it. is California's leading cannabis nursery, offering over 100 plus varieties of premium genetics. From new strains to classics and exotics, there's something for everyone. Home growers and farmers can learn more at darkheartnursery.com. Greetings, cannabis community. Welcome to the Cannabis and Home Grow Show with Mark Eden. And I'm here today with my friend and integrated pest management specialist, Matthew Gates. And he's in from San Diego. And I've known him a number of years. I just look up to this man. And uh, Matt, I can't wait for you to tell your story about when you got the bug for bugs and how you got involved in this career of integrated pest management. So... I appreciate the introduction. Um, I've been interested in, I would say, nature and ecology and things like that since I was very young. Uh, as a child, I was a big fan of the outdoors, and I was a Boy Scout growing up, and, um, and I'm an Eagle Scout now, and I've always enjoyed those sorts of activities, like camping and, and hiking and backpacking and that sort of a thing. Um, I was really interested in insects and arthropods, although I wouldn't necessarily know them by those names as a child. Um, I think perhaps the most mm, salient reason is because they're so different from us. They have a very unique morphology and um, I think that lends them to being uh, really unique and interesting. Um, when I was a child, I also, in the mid nineties, uh, mid to late 90s anyways, the first uh, Pokemon game came out. And I've told this story a few times in different places. But essentially, um, the person who produced uh, the first Pokemon games, Satoshi Tajiri, actually was inspired to make them by doing very much the same sort of things I did as a child at the, at the time uh, when he was a kid. And that was to go explore caves and forests and look for bugs and that kind of a thing. Anyone who's familiar with the series knows that bug-type Pokemon are um, commonly encountered in the beginning stages of the game. Um, and there are also um, uh, characters that kind of uh, make that habit quite a bit. So as a child, I feel like exposure to video games like these and other sorts of media, fictional or otherwise, um, were really helpful in cementing and allowing me to explore these sorts of interests. Okay, so when did it become a career and what was that transition? When did you realize I want to work professionally as a scientist? Well, I actually wanted to join the military in my early teens and high school um, uh, time. And um, originally I wanted to work in military intelligence in the US Army, but um, I didn't commission. Instead I lived um, in China for two years. <laughs> 
and uh, worked in agriculture a little bit before then. Um, and then all from then all the way up to, so about my, I would say to answer the question, uh, my, my like early twenties essentially is when I started turning this into a professional career. Yeah. I was interested. So it sounds like, you know, 18 out of high school, you weren't sure what you were doing or you were trying to get in the military. And, um, I guess it just took, it didn't take you long. I mean, it takes some people a little bit longer to find something that they're wildly passionate about and learn how to make a profit off of. Yeah. And I think also it, I mean, I take a lot of, like, I, I made a lot of friends and I take, a, I took a lot of the sort of like ethos, I suppose you could say, um, from my experience. I also come from a military family as well. So um, some of the ideas and concepts and, and broader strokes, I think were also even applicable to integrated pest management. Um, I mean, certainly it's a, it's a, it's all logistics really at the end of the day, whether it's, whether it's warfare or whether it's um, farming or business or whatever you're doing, you have to be able to manage your resources. And so logistics becomes paramount at a certain level of scale anyways, or really all scales, to be honest. And so what exactly do you do as a consultant and what's the name of your consultancy? So I go and I operate by the name of Zenthanol Consulting. And the thing that I most primarily do is I um, evaluate and create standard operating procedures about integrated pest management strategy for people who are cultivating crops um, and specifically with cannabis in this case. And that, that's the most primary thing that I do. But I also do remote consulting with people um, especially recently, uh, and I help people out with various issues or problems that they might be having. And I try to open myself up to as many people as possible and at many, as many scales as possible, commercial, residential, whatever, because I very much believe it's important to have this information that I accrue be as accessible as possible. And I've made many, uh, great personal and professional relationships by, um, allowing myself to be so kind of open to this communication uh, personally. It's even allowed me to document things that I think um, weren't documented before, as far as I understood, or as far as I was able to assess. And it has allowed me to become uh, knowledgeable about things kind of um, before the power curve, so to speak. Well, in terms of your accessibility, where can we find you? I know we can find you on LinkedIn, making posts almost every day about IPM and about uh, pests and and things. But where else? Tell me about, what, do you have a website? And I know you have a video channel. Yeah, so I do have a small website right now um, called zenthanol.com, very simply. Uh, but I would have to say that most of my interactions, both personal and professional, happen um, on... <laughs> Uh, and I never thought this to be the case uh, growing up on Instagram at Sync Angel, um, on Twitter at Sync Angel, and also on my YouTube channel you alluded to, um, which is Zenthanol itself, youtube.com slash Zenthanol, which is where I put most of my content. Can you spell out your, your uh, Instagram again? Just spell it out for me. Yeah. Um, S-Y-N-C-H, like synchronize, and A-N-G-E-L, like angel. Bada bang. Everyone can get connected now. So that's for Twitter and Instagram. 
and you're on LinkedIn and you have a YouTube. Your YouTube is pretty famous. Uh, you have a very unique style of presenting uh, facts, information, research. Tell me, like, what's what's behind the YouTube channel? What's your goal with it? What's your mission with it? And what's coming up next? Like, what what can we look forward to on your YouTube channel? So, in my opinion, I think it's incredibly important that the as sort of the esoteric research that gets produced is able to be processed in a way that people are able to understand it, but maybe not always so processed that it becomes kind of indolent and uh, oversimplified. So I try to strike a balance there. And I think that's where some of that uniqueness comes from. What I'm trying to do with it is I'm trying to help um, essentially educate as many people as possible about integrated pest management options for crop cultivation, especially in the ecological conscientious sort of holistic, multifaceted, multi-domain approach. There's a lot of different ways that people can go about IPM. And the better you understand things like ecology and biology and microbiology and various other scientific disciplines uh, that's related to plant cultivation, like phytopathology, um, the easier it is to see sort of patterns and the easier it is to come up with sort of novel um, uh, treatments or uh, prophylactic sort of uh, strategies. And I'm very excited about that sort of bleeding, cutting edge um, technology and seeing it become democratized for agriculture at all scales. Yeah, you cover some really interesting stuff. My eyes tend to get excited when I see you uh, post videos of the creepy crawly bugs. So give me an example of like some of the videos you have up that are really popular. Um, so I think my most popular video is probably my video about the three soil mites that are no threat or something like that. And because <laughs> this is because the impetus for the video were all the questions that I was getting on various social media platforms about uh, springtails, which I also made a separate video about, which are not problematic, um, as well as mold mites, which are really common and ubiquitous, and sort of like the seemingly predatory mites, the really ambulatory, quick-moving mites that people see in their soil or on their plants. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate because a lot of people see these, um, you know, bug-looking things. And they freak out. They think that it's a problem when it's not. And it's, I just think it's very, uh, I guess at the end, end of the day, the best way to put it is that it's very wasteful to see people like try to make treatment regimens for them when they don't need to, spending tons of money that they don't need to, tearing down their entire grow, which is a ton of time and resource investment um, unnecessarily, right? And so that's an example of a, two videos that I think are quite popular. And I also share them very often. I have a pest primer video series. Um, and for those who are interested in my IPM content, I would recommend that series primarily because um, it was sort of the major impetus for the YouTube channel in the first place is making small bite-sized but informationally dense video videos about um, various arthropods, pests and insects and that kind of a thing. And as I worked uh, much more um, in the cannabis space, I decided to just focus on pests um, in cannabis. But 
a lot of those pests are actually just sort of generalist pests like spider mice and western flower thrips and that kind of a thing. I actually just posted a video about uh, the brown scale, um, Cox's Hesperidum, that was documented in Kentucky hemp, but I've documented it in cannabis uh, many years before that. Mm. And um, like in 2018, I posted a video about Cox's Hesperidum as a pest primer video. And uh, I'm sure multiple other people have seen it previous to that time, but I'm happy to see it get documented in an empirical scientific journal. Yeah, that's really cool. You had a, you had a glimpse of it. So Matt, do you like cannabis yourself? Do you grow yourself? Do you grow other things? I do grow other things. I have grown cannabis and I like to partake in it. Definitely. Um, I'm a part of, or not, I'm not a part of, but I've presented at the California Bear Fruit Grower Association, uh, San Diego chapter, twice. And I love the ability to have access to fruits that are rare or interesting cultivars that are not typically available commercially or rarely uh, commercially available. I think it's really cool to have access to that uh, and to grow such plants when possible. I have a a uh, big gym cultivar loquat, which is significant because it's named after uh, a gentleman who uh, is native to California and um, curated a bunch of different uh, rare cultivars. So I just like the history related to that. And cannabis, as you very well know, uh, has tons of, you might call mythologies associated with very various cultivars. Some of them are much more voracious than others or at least can be confirmed easier than others. Um, and so I really, I really appreciate that there's a lot of history and human culture associated with cannabis generally from like, you know, millennia ago, all the way up to the current modern day. And um, I think that's a very important facet for IPM as well, because when you understand the origins and sort of human involvement and domestication, um, I think that is useful for you to understand kind of what those dynamics can be currently. What are some of your favorite strains? And when you were growing, what was your style? How did you grow? So right now, my favorite uh, cultivar that I've ever had, I think probably goes to my buddy, Brandon Rust, who uh, produced the Death Breath, which I really enjoyed. Um, it was very, in my opinion, anyways, it's very peppery and savory and very intensely gassy. And I really like those particular um, traits, those aromas and flavors. Mm -hmm. That sounds delicious. I also uh, really liked his Limarilla as well on that note. Uh, and when I do grow, when I did grow previously, I did a deep water culture that was very interesting. And I really enjoyed that. And I also just grew out in the soil. I just had some uh, some some natural soil and some at a compost pile, and I had uh, some black soldier fly larvae that I was growing to process like food scraps and things, and then I would use the um, the exudate from the BSF larvae uh, in my growing. It has a lot of really interesting microbes and enzymes and things that I think are really useful uh, for the plant to grow, and also um, 
I utilized uh, Bokashi from again from Brandon Russ as well because he sent me a bag of his Bokashi and it I thought it was quite quite useful. Also for my other plants awesome. too. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that I teach a lot of brand new beginners, and I you know I might reference a few pests. Um, so I'm going to rattle off the pests that I typically mention and reference. And then if you could just chime in about some other ones that, you know, maybe are less common, but that you're seeing out there. So like with the new grower, I'm talking about, you know, you might get spider mites, aphids, thrips, leaf miners, fungus gnats, caterpillars, russet mites, white flies. You might get powdery mildew, tobacco, tobacco mosaic virus. Did I say that right? You did say it right. Although I don't think there's a lot of empirical evidence for that one. Ooh, good. Good to hear. I like a good controversy. Mm. Rust, blight, leaf, septoria, fusarium. I mean, those are the ones that I kind of rattle off, but am I missing any ones that are hanging around and bothering people these days? I feel like you hit a lot of the really good ones, honestly. Um, That's that's a pretty great bevy of pests to be aware of. Um, Well, let's talk about tobacco mosaic virus then. What's the... What's the deal on that? Yeah, that's actually my question too. Because um, <laughs> I wouldn't actually be surprised. See, tobacco mosaic virus has the sort of um, uh, ignoble uh, uh, <laughs> status of being, I think, the first virus that was ever identified, I think, or confirmed, or, or, or one of the first anyways. Um Tobacco, been around. The tobacco mosaic virus is a very, very broad host range virus. It's uh, thermotolerant, so it's very commonly able to survive outside of its host, which is not a super common trait among viruses, plant viruses or otherwise. Um, but the re- so, so to me, considering the huge host range of plants that it infects, I would not be surprised if uh, cannabis was a natural host. That being said, I'd have, I do, I have not seen, I've seen many people get very close to describing tobacco mosaic virus as uh, something that they've found in like a kit, some sort of like a, um, not a PCR necessarily, um, uh, or, or, or they've taken that to get like a sequence. I, I guess it is like that. And, um, and there have been like similarities. So with viruses, different strains can be 99% the same, but have a few genes that are different. And those genes can be very, very um, like important. They can be related to virulence or something like that. But the long and the short of it is that um, I haven't seen any empirical, like scientific research that shows it that's recent and modern that uses the omics technology that we use now. I'd really like to see that followed up. And I feel like that's going to happen if it's not already happening. And um if anyone has seen this research that is modern, by which I mean past the 2000s at the very least, um, I'm very open to hearing it because, like I said, I think it's very likely, but I haven't seen anything that's confirmed. And I think that's an important uh, level of rigor to keep myself to. There's tons of. Yeah, the, I think. The, sorry, there's other viruses, though, that infect cannabis. Yeah, there's, you know, isn't there technically hundreds of plant diseases? There's tons. Oh yeah, and um, and aphids are aphids account for like fifty percent, more or less, of the plant virus transmissions, um, and hemiptera in general are 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 probably maybe 
closer to like 80% of transmissions in general. Um, and there are several insects that feed on um, cannabis that also feed on tons of other plants, like I mentioned earlier. And Western flower thrips is one of those Tobama viruses, Tobama virus, which is what tobacco mosaic virus is. It's actually the type kind of type species, Tobamo virus stands for tobacco mosaic virus. And that's the type oh, species. Yeah. So, so Western flower thrips vectors, a lot of those kinds of viruses and other thrips do too. So again, given that, um, and its proclivity for cannabis, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if that makes sense. Well, the quirky thing that I'm hung up on is that everything in writing says, if a plant has it, it cannot be cured, get rid of it. It's going to infect everything else. So like you alluded to earlier, if you're throwing away crops that you don't have to, that's not good. No, definitely not. But it is true. A lot of um, a lot of what we might call systemic pathogens, pathogens that colonize the plant systemically. Um, oh, my God. So, OK, hold systemic. Powdery mildew is wait. not systemic. Okay, so I'm talking about the title of this episode being something along the lines of bro science and um, have a list of lightning round questions where I just want you to get on, you know, whether it's one sentence or two minutes. But sure, I'm going to bring up some type of myth or claim and then bada bing, bada boom, you are a scientist and I know you are well-rounded in terms of you know a lot about cannabis cultivation. You don't know just about pests and disease. So this is going to be cool. And the first one is, is powdery mildew systemic? It's not. Um, I can see why people would think so. It gets everywhere. Um, and it often reinfests its host, which is why it gets that appearance that is get, that's getting on all the tissue. Uh, the first, so... There is a powdery mildew species, and I have a pest primer on this species called Golovinomyces sigrisirum, which is known commonly as a lettuce powdery mildew, and infects a ton of different plants, including cannabis, and it's been documented to do so, which is why I'm comfortable saying it like this. Um, mm -hmm. This powdery mildew, um, and others like it, they're only epiphytes. They can only infect the top, or like really the, really the top epidermal layer of the plant. The first 120 or so hours of infection by a spore is, or canidia, is uh, pretty much invisible. So you can't really blame yourself too much for not seeing it. And this is one reason why quarantine is so important for multiple days. Um, so yeah, powdery mildew is not systemic. A fungus that is systemic, however, and can even exist asymptomatically in various plants until they start to flower is Botrytis cinerea which is also a very common pathogen in cannabis. Good distinction. Okay, I forgot to ask you, what is bro science? <laughs> Why are we talking about bro science? Oh, I mean, I feel like that's a question for you, right? <laughs> yeah, I can answer the second part. Yeah, You answer what is bro science, and then I'll say why we're talking about it. Sure, bro science um, is, it's sort of a... It's science that may have some base, in my opinion, anyways, I would call it science that might seem very, very true, uh, maybe based on like um, a peripheral understanding of other things, but isn't like, isn't actually the case, or at the very least isn't confirmed. Um, 
and usually is not correct. I would say it would be usually the most often distinction. Sometimes people make assessments that are um, too hasty, but then they end up being right. That happens sometimes as well. Um, but yeah, I would say bro science is the the stuff that isn't that's a hasty generalization or a hasty conclusion that is incorrect. Okay. Yes. And it's kind of a a buzzword right now because on LinkedIn where you actually can talk and discuss cannabis cultivation at length, you know, there's a lot of things out there that people put out and they get called on the carpet. Somebody says, Oh, that's just bro science. So I, you know, we're going to hit all those bro science, those typical bro science uh, things. And now just, you know, to put it out there, I'm, sure i'm guilty of some bro science um i doubt you very much are (laughs) um but you're also open-minded and i love bringing like creative ideas to you and getting your uh scientist scientific perspective i appreciate so i i might get schooled here uh i might be guilty of some you know propelling these myths in society my bad if i am but um i think there might be one or two um okay Let's start with enlighting, cannabis lighting. Do specific colors of light constitute and produce higher yields? That's a good question. And I think the intellectually honest answer is I'm not really very sure. I think it's kind of contentious. I do think, though, my understanding at least, is that there are different um, spectra of light that not just cannabis um, is sensitive to. And so there could very well be effects that change the plant hormonally. And I think there is some research to back that up, but nothing that I can cite off the top of my head. Um, So that's my sort of, that's my answer to that. I think it's a little bit contentious, but there might be something there. Good answer. And, oh, I think you're right. So I happen to know that Bruce Bugby, the professor at Utah State University, has, in my opinion, the best two-hour video about lighting today um, is a work of art. And he says no, but I really liked your answer. That was beautiful. Yeah, and it might just be very slight. And at that point, I think I should also mention that, and maybe this is another question, but like uh, PPFD, uh, the <laughs> which I forget the exact name for, but it's, a, it's the photon density of light mm-hmm. is a, is a really important factor. And it's pretty much the same across a lot of different plants. And I think it's about like saturation level for light photons, you know, per center, I think it's per like uh, centimeter squared, is it? But basically the amount of photons you're putting on the leaf surface um, should be around like, I think 500. And if you get much more further than that, it's kind of like you, you're not, you don't get a ton of benefit because the plants already like, saturated with light if that makes sense sure i actually have a light expert lighting expert um, interviewing later this month and definitely going to follow up on that i thought also something to do with the umol rating that seems to be like a new micromole big thing okay that's the micromole rating mm-hmm. okay yeah and yeah, we're talking am... about the same thing uh or almost the same thing okay. basically yeah oh good yeah good and just for everyone listening, Matt is like literally one of the smartest people I know. So I love just kind of being my simple, dumb self with him. And he just flows with me and does not make me feel like an idiot. So I appreciate it. Matt, 
Are some strains PM resistant? Probably. Um, Canbreed is a company that is in the news recently because they are uh, editing, they're genetically editing cannabis and they're in San Diego actually. And they're, I think they're looking to knock out some susceptibility genes in cannabis. And so that could confer resistance. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be through, well, it could happen through natural selection, losing these S genes or through the combination of other um, uh, genes through other uh, populations. Um, but, and I think this might've been the impetus for the entire conversation we're having right now. I, I, I don't like it when people say that something's resistant and then they have no way to qualify or quantify that statement because it's not enough to say, hey, uh, my plants are resistant because I never get powdery mildew. Did you try to infect it with powdery mildew? Did you have a baseline? Are the powdery mildews you're using um, for that test even a particularly virulent uh, isolate or are they not very virulent? Are they kind of hypovirulent? And if that's the case, then they aren't a very good um, isolate to use for that experiment. So there's a lot of factors that people just gloss over that I think are yeah, valid to consider. I get that. The, the claims that people make. Yeah. I, I'm allergic to that kind of marketing. I don't really like, I don't really like saying things like that because as an IPM specialist, I think it's really important to be as empirical as possible with those kinds of claims because people are spending tons of money on plant, uh, well, the, plant genes, right? So essentially your plant. The claim to increase yield is the most popular claim True. and everyone does it. Lighting people are doing it. Fertilizer companies doing it. I mean, everyone's claiming, nope, this is the, this is your number one yield booster. That's true. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And the answer is of course, it's complicated. <laughs> oh yeah. It depends. It depends. <laughs> I hope that it depends on less things in the future though. I hope that we can find, and I'm sure that there's a lot of financial um, and personal incentive for people to really um, tackle that, that perspective. And um, I have made videos about resistance on my YouTube channel about cannabis evolution and pest host ecology and relationships. And I do talk about like the possibility for resistance and susceptibility in plants generally and cannabis in particular for various pests. Okay. Love it. How about this? Street weed is safe and clean. And by street weed, I mean, the traditional market, the original market, the illicit market, the black market, whatever you want to call it. I call it street weed. Uh, it's safe and clean. It certainly can be. What do you think, though? Do you think most of it's safe and clean, or do you think that a lot of it is still tainted, or not still, but is tainted? And should be should people be concerned? I would say that whenever you're buying a product that um, – even if you are actually, I would say it this way, even if you are buying a product that is um, certified as safe, you have to take a look at the certifying like agency and, and whether you personally trust that agency or not. Personally, I usually trust, uh, especially living in California, uh, the USDA and the CDFA, but they're not infallible. Uh, things get past them. Like the, um, recently, I think there was another E. coli outbreak for spinach in Salinas Valley. 
um, hopefully I'm not being slanderous right now, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that just happened and it has happened in the past. Um, I mean, that's a non-cannabis example, right? And so I wouldn't be surprised if um, a significant enough proportion of cannabis that's unregulated uh, and even regulated for that matter, um, as it has been shown to be the case, um, is contaminated. So I, I feel like you can't you can't use those as a perfect proxy for safety, which is why growing your own, something that you facilitate, um, is maybe the best option for people who have that ability. Yes, agreed. All right, Miracle Grow is bad for cannabis. That's a common claim out there. And I just, you know, what's... If we take it, if we take the question kind of literally, and I mean, bad is doing a lot of work in that sentence. I'm not quite sure what that means. But uh, if, if the question is, is can cannabis be grown without miracle grow? Absolutely. It's the question, does it like do like physical, physiological damage to the plant? I think that's sort of, I don't think that's true. Um, but there could be other reasons why people shouldn't grow with miracle weed, uh, miracle weed, miracle grow. Uh, <laughs> they, um, well, for one thing, uh, kind of similar to the question we just had just now. Um, I do feel like when it comes to sort of industrial fer uh, fertilizers and soils and other sorts of things like that, um, I'm very reticent to trust that they're totally safe. I do feel like they are at such a massive industrial scale that I think that um, it's legitimate to think that sometimes things get passed and maybe more than just sometimes things get passed. And uh, really any bulk industrial uh, fertilizer or soil is, is pretty susceptible to having things in it that you don't really want. So it does become a question again of who do you trust and well, what's the outlook that you're looking for? And for some people, they, they just don't have very many options available either because they personally um, can't do some of the cultivation things necessary to like do living soil or even procure hydroponic uh, substrates or cocoa core or Maybe they uh, ideologically disagree with like rock wool, for example. So it really depends on the person. Uh, but I really don't think that, I mean, I don't advocate for miracle grow myself. Awesome. An informed response. I love it. 48 hours of darkness before harvest. You know what I'm talking about. Does it increase THC? Is there any value in this practice or is this just a tale? I don't know. I think that though it's probably, even if it does have such an effect, it probably doesn't have this effect in all cases, which is not saying much. I understand. <laughs> Are you familiar with any research on this? I've read lots of people running their own, you know, personal private at home study, but have you come across anybody trying to find out if this is a legitimate science proven practice or are we just wasting time i feel like i've read something akin to it but you know what i might not have specifically seen 48 hours i think i've seen 24 hours before um but yeah like you i'm mostly familiar with like i think even my friend jack greenstock on the cheap home grow podcast has done something similar to that um and i think we recently debated about it 
uh, but I don't remember the, the speculation in detail. That's a question I don't think I could answer very well. All right. Well, I appreciate your honesty. Well, everyone wants frosty plants, and a lot of growers talk about cutting, scratching, putting nails into the stalks, and they believe that this is driving the, the THC and the frost. And is that something that has any scientific merit to it? Um, bumblebees, and I think maybe even some honeybees, but it might just be bumblebees. Uh, they will poke with their um, mouth part. They will poke through leaves and other tissues like flower tissue in order to induce greater pollen production, particularly if they notice or if they feel uh, in their assessments that the, the pollen reserves are kind of minimal and lacking, which is kind of a neat thing to see documented. That was recently published as an observation. I bring it up. I bring it up because it's possible that something like this can also have physiological benefits. Like um, plants certainly have a, a, a immune response and a hormonal response to uh, mechanical damage, uh, and also mechanical damage that specifically has like proteins and chemical compounds that are associated with pests um, called effectors. Uh, or, or rather, um, well, so they can be effectors anyways, but they're called, um, uh, they've changed the names a few times, but like herbivore-induced or herbivore-associated molecular patterns, HAMPs, or pathogen-associated molecular patterns, PAMPs. Um, these are like little, basically small molecules and other sorts of things that the, that the plant host uh, recognizes as a threat, and then it starts to stimulate various immune responses in the plant. So if you have mechanical damage that lacks that, there's this, there's a different kind of response that maybe is more muted. And then if you have specific um, identification, then that response can be much more tailored in some species over others. So perhaps. Okay. Do plants move better, uh, move better? Do plants grow better with music? Probably if the cultivator really digs it and your morale is up. But as far as like other sort of um, uh, sort of sonication techniques, I am a little bit skeptical, not of their possible efficacy so much, because I do think there's ways to harness it for not just integrated pest management, but perhaps for um, uh, benefits in cultivation, physiological response and guiding the plant. Um or maybe not guiding the plant, but maybe having some sort of a physiological effect on aspects of its tissues or things like that. But I just feel like the research I've read on things like this just doesn't pan out, um, particularly with music. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, plants and even some insects do use vibrations in the air as also as well as vibrations through the branches and things um, of the plant to communicate, uh, or at the very least, they can receive communications one way and sometimes both ways. And the the movement of like caterpillar mandibles on uh, Arabidopsis has been shown to stimulate reactions in the immune system of the plant. And so, and that was unique. That, and they were able to the scientists were able to record the really, really faint sounds, the vibrations, and then 
uh, also get an immune response from the plant when there was no mechanical damage present. So there could be something there. The question is how to implement it. And how do you implement it without possibly having other physiological interactions that you don't want? Just because it's sound doesn't mean that uh, it can't have negative effects. And indeed, I feel like sound in particular is one of those things that's so broad spectrum, kind of like a chemical agent that you get everywhere. It could have deleterious effects if you're just not careful, but we just don't know. There would have to be a lot of trials. I feel like that's the case. Yeah. I'd be interested in doing that project. Let me tell you. Sounds like fun. I don't mind failing. Speaking of failing, have you ever tried, um, you know, to come up with a, a, a method or a way of dealing with something and then realize, ah, it's just not a good idea? Um, yeah, uh, usually I get to do it practically firsthand and, and, and figure it out uh, by myself, <laughs> sometimes with the help of somebody else, too. Um, but as a, as a strategy, usually I, all there is to do is just kind of field test. And what my experience is, is what I often try to go on when I don't have something to reference. Yeah. Doesn't most of the testing and research in your field have to happen indoors because you can, it's controlled or. A lot of, a lot of it, I think happen. It depends on the kind of research. A lot of it happens when you are trying to test for a couple of variables or as few variables as possible that you want to change. Um, and sometimes that yields data that is uh, kind of useful to interpret. And sometimes it's sort of like a moot point because like you say, just because you've discovered maybe this function in this very particular context, does it mean that in a field setting, in a greenhouse setting, in a field crop setting and in the very outdoors with no environmental control and, and also with many other factors to consider doesn't mean that you're going to get exactly the same effect, but um, definitely I've seen cannabis research from non indoor um, environments, particularly the a couple of research reports I just talked about on the future cannabis project about uh, the microbiome and cannabis. Ah, oh, yeah, that was, I really enjoyed that video. And you also had an article recently in Skunk Magazine, which was pretty cool. You've been very busy. I appreciate that. Yeah, I try to keep busy, especially this last year. Okay, here's a, here's a question, big, big question. Does the fertilizer influence the taste of your cannabis flowers or unsulfured plant molasses? Personally, I haven't been able to test it like myself. <laughs> I think that some people feel this is the case. I feel like fertilizer and other sort of inputs can have an effect on, on flavor, and uh, but like more fundamentally have effects on the physiology and how the plant grows, which can obviously have downstream effects for things like secondary metabolites, like terpenes and cannabinoids. And I think that would affect the flavor, right? So I think that technically the answer is yes, but how and why is a little bit more um, hard to parse out. I hear that. And I'm always kind of uh, tuned into 
tuned into that. And I, I tell you, I do find different tastes from different brands of fertilizer. So I'm trying to crack that nut. And anytime you have more information on that, please let me know. I just saw a research report. Um, I didn't look into it yet, but I saw the headline and it was talking about how some organic fertilizers, uh, I guess they, they tested organic fertilizers versus non-organic fertilizers and the organic fertilizers uh, induced more genetic expression. Now that's going to sound like a buzzword if I don't clarify it a bit, but um, I haven't actually looked at the research report. So for those who are interested, you should go and check that out. I don't have the title off the top of my head, but I think that's kind of an interesting perspective and I look forward to reading about that more. Cool. Good. Something to follow up on for sure. How about this? You can never have too much mycelium. Well, that depends on the source of the mycelium. <laughs> you just need more, Matt. More, you, more, you can more have, right? You don't want to have more have powdery mildew mycelium. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, the you could always, craze. You, you could is always it, is have it legitimate? Um, I think that it's legitimate. The thing is, is that, and I talked about this in those other um, other videos in the magazine, or I actually didn't talk about it in the Skunk Magazine article, but a lot of the more current research about cannabis seems to point to cannabis having what's called a low plant effect or a low rhizosphere effect, meaning that um, when you compare the microbial interactions in the rhizosphere in the like first couple of millimeters from the roots, the rhizoplane, uh, when you compare that activity or that sort of population to in, to the bulk soil, essentially the non-rhizosphere soil, uh, if they're very similar, then there's a low rhizosphere effect. And that means that the cannabis doesn't have a very sophisticated or intense influence over the microbial population um, nearby it a plant that would have a high rhizosphere effect would have a very big difference between the ones in its rhizosphere and those um, kind of freely living outside of it. But in those research reports, sometimes the researchers and myself also kind of agree that uh, it could be a f an artifact of the fact that they're growing either indoor or they're growing in a system where it wouldn't facilitate or because they're using cultivars that have evolved or rather, well, evolution is the right word, where they have domestication phenotypes. And so wild populations of cannabis might be way more um, uh, receptive, essentially, because there's a genetic component on the microbe side and also the plant side. And uh, it kind of makes intuitive sense, right? If you take a plant uh, out of its origin area and you cultivate it away from a lot of the microbes and symbioses, both mutualistic and parasitic that it grew up with for hundred, you know, several million years, then over even a short span of a few years to a few millennia, um, you can have a very different sort of profile. And uh, those are sort of subtle changes that people who were growing cannabis millennia ago had, you know, very little concept of. And I wouldn't be surprised if that downstream effect has sort of caused a, um, impairment of those sorts of interactions. But some mycorrhizae and other sorts of soil microbiota are very generalistic and they can make like not super intimate, but sort of beneficial 
uh, interactions with cannabis. And there is some research that shows that. So I feel like cannabis might have more of a rise of fear effect than is currently being shown in a lot of the research, but we need to see more of it, I think, specific to cannabis. Very well. Well, a lot of people look to you for um, information, resources. Do you, where do you look uh, and find these studies? So I keep a, um, an active Google Scholar account that uh, trawls the, I have a setup to sort of like um, pick up keywords and I think that people who are trying to keep on top of that sort of research would do well to do the same kind of a thing. Um, I believe it or not, I have made Twitter a particularly useful tool by basically just following people that I like that are like scientists and that kind of a thing that use Twitter for science communication like I do. And a lot of times, uh, they will post things that are really relevant to me and I'll have to like stop what I'm doing, download that paper, take a look at it and then make a post about it or make a video about it or include it in an upcoming video that I'm already kind of planning. Um, so there's a few different ways that I do it, but it's been surprising to me and surreal how many of these people are people that I can just talk to directly through social media. Yeah, social media can be really helpful, really amazing. And as long as you're using it wisely mm -hmm. and not getting too addicted, this is true. Um, I think people have been struggling with that in 2020, but I think this is a new year and everyone's going to be a little more calm and relaxed and maybe be a little more grateful for, you know, our survival <laughs> and we've made it and we've, we've got much more good to do. And, I want you to kind of wrap this up, Matt, by telling me who's your ideal client? Where do they live? Where do they live? Well, who is your ideal client and where do they live? I'd say that an ideal client is one that uh, maintains an appreciation for com the complexity of integrated pest management because it is very complex and ones that have an earnest passion to identify the vulnerabilities and kind of rapidly fortify them. It's not only hypocrisy, but also a waste of skill and effort to pretend that one can help those that are not actually interested in making the necessary changes in protocol um, or listening to those who are trying to. And I've come across that a lot in my work. And I still try to help those people out as much as I can, but it is sometimes folly and um, those sorts of people who are probably my most ideal clients are those that I don't have to travel too far to see, um, even though I do like to visit new locations and interact with people very different than myself. And you're able to provide consulting remotely as well? Uh, yeah, that's correct. I do like to do site evaluations personally. I feel like that yields the very best of my like skill set, or at least it renders myself in the best way possible for the client, because a lot of the things that I think to look for can't really be abstracted out easily and um, kind of communicated innately to somebody else. It's sort of like you either have that innate talent through, or you have years of experience that kind of couple with sure. it, right? Yeah, I'm sure you do a thorough inspection while you're there and there's, you know, you're gathering all kinds of information and it's, 
and that's what you can do. But you can also do long-term quality control. You can consult existing IPM teams that just need uh, a second opinion. So, and you also help home growers, right? That's true. I try to help people at various scales um, from the residential to the commercial. Um, that also kind of falls in line with my perspective about what I want to grow or rather what I want to help out with, which is pretty much as many people as possible. But yeah, most prominently I assist in the construction of IPM SOPs and um, various other problems that people have both big and small. That's great. Well, if anyone's listening, I would suggest having Matt help you with those, but also with quality control over the years. And he's just a great resource and he's extremely accessible. He gave us all the ways we can connect with him. And Matt, what's something on your mind in the, in the cannabis industry? You know, what, what grinds your gears besides people not paying attention to pests? Uh, maybe this is still what you just said. Uh, but I think, I think that generally just not biosecurity people people don't take into consideration the fact that they might fail um more often than not for various reasons and also they don't consider that they could get um uh, pests or they could bring in exotic things from somewhere else and really cause a, a mass travesty for the ver the rest of the cannabis community um, and I think that although it's not directly towards pests, I do feel like this perspective of or this sort of like lack of biosecurity hygiene and practice is ultimately going to very much be a disservice to the cannabis community. And if we're not careful, uh, new pests, as they always do, will wreck the cannabis industry and also the residential community. Um, so not just people who are growing in an industrial capacity and those people at the, in their individual homes are going to suffer the most because they won't have that infrastructure for support. Yeah. Uh, I understand you like to travel. So, you know, if there's a startup grow in Maine and they have the budget to bring you out, is that something you're interested in or do you want to stay uh, primarily doing these on-site services only in Southern California, where you're well-known and um, made quite a name for yourself? I definitely travel. Um, I've traveled to Michigan and various other parts of the continental United States of America. And I associate remotely with various people in various countries across the earth. And I am definitely interested in helping people out in the capacity you're talking about on-site. Awesome both in traveling, but also locally. Good. National and international is what I'm hearing. That's correct. Good, good. Well, you know, I, I applaud your lifestyle and I, I think, I think you're going to have a very busy future because all these states keep on getting on the bus and, you know, they start with the medical cannabis and, the safety and the integrity of the product is directly related to IPM. So I think there's so much opportunity and that you're going to be probably too busy. You probably need to find an assistant <laughs> and, uh, but no, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, if you ever come up with any cool, interesting 
ideas for another talk. I would love to discuss anything related to IPM or cannabis cultivation or cannabis culture for that matter with you. I appreciate that. And I'm sure that we'll have multiple topics for the future to discuss. Awesome. Good, good, good. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend and that uh, people listening reach out because you are a, a rare commodity in cannabis cultivation. So thank you for what you do and making all of us smarter, better, wiser about pests and disease. Thank you, Matt. Oh, you're for tuning into my cannabis podcast. If you enjoyed it, share with a friend, family member, or colleague so everyone can get informed on all things cannabis this 2021. We're also selling high-quality hemp cigarettes made in San Diego. So if you're looking for an alternative to traditional cigarettes, look no further. They're made in San Diego. There's no nicotine, tobacco, or added chemicals. And everything, even the box, filter, and paper are made from hemp. 